Our scripture reading for this morning can be found in, God, in John's Gospel, uh, the first chapter. And then after we read that, we will turn back to the first page of the Bible and read in Genesis chapter 1. So John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, and we will read the first five verses of John's Gospel. And then we will read the first five verses of the Bible, the first five verses of Genesis. John chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now back to Genesis chapter 1. And we will also read the first five verses there. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which teaches us uh, who you are, and what you've done for us, and how we are to live before you. We pray that, um, that you would give me clarity of thought as I preach this morning and that you would give all of us an openness to hear your word, and that your spirit would use your word uh, to move us and guide us in our worship and in our love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll start, um, and we're going to be talking today for the next few minutes on the subject of the God we worship. I want to start that with what may seem like a strange question. Is it possible that the average Christian and that the typical church spends far too little time thinking about God? Now that may seem like a strange question because if you're just talking about the subject of religion generally, almost anybody, Christian or non-Christian, would say that the idea of religion has at a somewhat central point the idea of who God is and how he relates to the world and to people. And certainly within a Christian context, we would narrow that further and say that Christianity has to do with the God who reveals himself to us in Scripture. And yet it can be true that we can be guilty, both as individuals and as a church, of thinking of all kinds of matters of religious interest, whether doctrinal or moral, whether related to the way we live or what we believe, We can be guilty of thinking about all kinds of things of religious interest without actually giving attention to the person of God himself. If I can narrow that a little bit, um, in his modern classic, Knowing God, J.I. Packer laments that while the average Anglican congregation has a, well, all Anglican congregations have a Sunday that they refer to as Trinity Sunday, And he laments that the typical Anglican clergyman preaches on that Sunday on the Trinity 
and on that Sunday only, if even that Sunday. And Packer goes on to say that in many denominations that don't have such a calendar, um, that he wonders if ministers preach on the subject of the Trinity at all. And I have to say that in my decades in a variety of types of churches, I have to say that uh, that Packer's concern is probably true. It's a subject that really doesn't get very much attention. And there's a price that is paid if we are guilty of that lack of attention. Um, over the years in discussions with family and friends, I have found that more than any other central doctrine of our faith, more folks have struggled with the idea of the triune God, that God is one but exists eternally as three persons. More have struggled with that idea than almost anything else. And it's important that we get God right for a number of reasons, both in terms of what we believe and in how we live. After all, we say that we come to church to worship God, but if we say that we come to church to worship God, isn't it absolutely crucial that we worship the God who is really there, that our ideas about God and who he is actually are reflective of the God who actually exists? Around 1980, a movie came out called Stir Crazy, which featured Richard Pryor playing a person. The character's name was Harry Monroe. <laughs> Richard Pryor is not preaching the sermon this morning, in case you didn't notice. In the same way, it's possible that people could talk about worshiping God, and they use the right name. But they are talking about a God who is very different from the one that is really here. And so it's absolutely crucial that we get God right. It's also important for other practical reasons. Um, uh, several years ago, a man named J.B. Phillips wrote a book that I've not read, but I like the title. If the book's no good, let me know later. Don't blame me, I've not read it. But the title of the book is Your God is Too Small. There are many people that worship a small God. And so when problems come about in our lives, we struggle with whatever the things are that we're struggling with, family, health, um, issues in our community, concerns about our culture. The problems seem enormous. And because we're looking at God out of the wrong end of the binoculars, God seems very small and unable to help. The problems are big. And our God that we believe in is too small. We need to know the God who is really there. When we recognize that God is bigger than those things that discourage us, we can find comfort and hope even while acknowledging our concerns and hurts. And so this morning we wanted to spend some time looking at the greatness of our God, the greatness of the God that we worship. So let's look again at the passage that we read here in Genesis chapter 1. And it begins with very simple words that are so familiar to us, we probably memorize these without ever even making the effort. And when we have passages of Scripture like that, sometimes we have a tendency when we read them just to skip over them because we know them so well. But verse 1 of the Bible, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, those few English words are so simple that we can teach them to our small children and they can understand what they mean. 
These words are so profound that the most mature minds among us might struggle to grapple with the significance of what's here. Just in this first verse of the Bible, we are introduced to some ideas about God that are absolutely sensational and amazing. And so when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we are reminded that before God created all things, that all that existed from all of eternity was God and nothing. Because everything that exists, exists because it was created by God before God I mean, before creation, before God, throw me out for that heresy. Um, uh, Before creation, there was God and there was nothing. Now that might seem sort of simple, but as R.C. Sproul reminds us in his book, The Holiness of God, the idea of nothing is actually kind of complicated. It's hard to figure out what nothing is. So when many of us think about nothing, we might think, well, it's like a huge expanse of space that's a vacuum that there's nothing there it's just a vacuum but an expanse of space is something and a vacuum is something these these are things and so it's um we really know nothing about what nothing is um it's a complicated uh concept and then we say well god uh, it was god and nothing for all of eternity past and eternity we think we know what that means right Eternity is like time that had no beginning and has no end. But there's a problem there. God created time too. Um, And so God exists outside of time. Time is an aspect of his creation. And so we're we're introduced to some really interesting and thought-provoking ideas that are reminders not that we can be clever with trying to figure out the meaning of words, but rather reminders of the greatness of God who is the creator and sustainer of everything. It's, these uh, ideas are so mind-boggling that it really is difficult to get our um, arms and minds around them. Because God is the source of everything that exists, the intricacy of the atom and the vastness of the universe are expressions of the wisdom and power of God. And that's an amazing thing that both the intricacy and the greatness of all that is, is representative of his wisdom and might. Another thing that we see from Genesis 1, 1, because God is the creator of all things, is that um, there is a fundamental distinction between God and everything else. You have creator and you have creature. And there is a a fundamental distinction. Many religions have the idea that God and creature get absorbed into one another. And that's very hostile toward biblical Christianity because our understanding of God is that he is distinct from his creation. Um, And from the time of the beginning of creation, there was a distinction based upon He's the creator and and everything else is creature. But then after the fall, we have the uh, the additional distinction between him being holy in all ways and us being uh, corrupt and the creation being corrupted by sin. And so we have this fundamental distinction between creator and creature. Because God is eternal, 
The other thing that the theologians tell us is that God is simple. Now, that may seem strange, given everything else that we've been talking about. Isn't this the most complicated subject in the world? But when we say that God is simple, what we are saying is that God is not made up of parts. If God were made up of parts, then the parts would have had to exist first, and then they would have come together to make God. But God is simple, and so God is... Uh, not a composite of a bunch of things put together. And among other things, this means that there is not more than one divine will, even though, as we will talk about in a minute, God um, exists eternally as three persons, the one God, three persons. But there's not more than one will. There's only one will. And furthermore, the attributes of God are also the essence of God. And so when we say that God is loving we also mean that God is love. When we say that God is righteous, we mean also that God is righteousness. When we say that God is is wise, we also understand that he is wisdom. And so his essence and his attributes are all one and the same. This is the greatness of the God that we worship. Now in the first chapter of Genesis, we start to get some hints at what is fully not revealed until later in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. And that is to say that we get some hints that God is triune. That is, that there's one God, and yet there are three persons in the Godhead. And so, in verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then at the end of verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so, you see this hint of a distinction of persons within the Godhead. You see God as creator and then the spirit, excuse me, that is um, hovering. Um, Later on in part of the first chapter that we didn't read, we see at the creation of man that God says, let us make man in our image. And so people debate on why, why the use of plural pronouns there? Why does... It say, let us make man in our image. And somebody says, well, that's an editorial we or a a we of majesty. But those are actually modern ways of speaking that wouldn't have been uh, known um, during Old Testament times. They didn't use those types of um, of figures of speech. Um, Some theologians, some of which are generally pretty good, say, well, God is speaking in company with the angels. But angels aren't in the image of God, and God and angels were not co-creators. And so the best um, explanation of the plural pronouns in verse 26 and forward is that we have a hint, a clue that will be elaborated on later in the Bible that God is one in essence but three in persons, that we worship a triune God. The other clue that we have from the very first of the Bible is this little word for God, which is interesting because the word Elohim, which probably most of us have heard over the years, is actually a plural noun. And when it's used with regard to pagan deities, it's translated gods. So why didn't they do that here? Well, because it's a plural noun used along with a singular verb. So either Moses was really bad at grammar 
or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there was a point here. And it's not fully understood here in the opening chapters of the Bible, but we see more later when we read in the New Testament particularly that God is one who eternally exists as three persons. And so that is our creator. But not only this morning do we want to see our creator, but secondly, notice with me our Christ. So turn over with me to John chapter 1, and let's read there. So the thing that you notice about John 1 is that there is an intentional mirroring of the language in John 1. John intentionally followed the language of Genesis 1, and so you have common language and themes with the words in the beginning um, opening John's gospel. Um, in, um, in Genesis, God speaks and there is creation. Um, whereas um, Genesis 1 speak, uh, tells us of God's speech, John 1 tells us of God's word. Um, the themes of light and life are prominent in both Genesis um, and here in John. And so we see the common themes, but along with that, we see John expressing this Trinitarian, actually the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in these verses, but uh, two persons of the Trinity that are discussed here in the opening uh, verses of John. And notice what he says here, that in the beginning was the Word, uh, not speaking of a creation, but someone that was already in existence, and the word was with God, so there was fellowship with God, and yet, and the word was God. And so a unity, one essence, existing here as two persons. And of course, in other parts of scripture, we read about the Holy Spirit making the third person of the Trinity. So we have a unity of essence and a duplicity of persons um, speaking here of the Godhead. Now, some, some people get confused in all this. There are Muslims and others that aren't Christians say, well, Christians believe in more than one God. You're polytheists. But actually, the New Testament uh, reiterates everything that's in the Old Testament about there being one God. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, the Bible says, yet for us, there is one God. In Ephesians 4, 6, Scripture says, there is one God and Father of all. And so the Bible in both Old Testament and in New emphasizes that there is one God. And yet we find in the New Testament, including our passage that we're reading in John's Gospel, that that one God exists eternally as three persons. Now there's an amazing thing about seeing the greatness of God and the second person of the Trinity that is revealed here um, in greater fullness in John's Gospel and, and elsewhere in the New Testament, and that is this. If you look at all the, the pagan religions of the ancient world, and you think about one of those pagan gods becoming a human being or taking on humanity, well, many of them did, didn't they? They came and appeared... Um, in human form on earth, and really it was not that big of a deal because frankly most of those gods weren't all that great in the first place. But when you think about the God who is described in Genesis 1 and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament 
and the greatness of that God, a God that is so magnificent that he is distinct from all things, that he is the creator of all things from the tiniest animal, uh, atom, atomic particle to the, the vast universe that we live in. A God like that came and took on humanity. That is an amazing thing. And then just follow it further. The God of Genesis 1 is the same God that not only took on humanity, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. I'm now referring to the passage in Philippians. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Draw a straight line from Genesis 1 to Golgotha. Draw a straight line from the praising songs of the angels to the pernicious slanders and painful suffering of Calvary. And you'll see something of the greatness of God then humiliating himself in the person of the Son and taking on the punishment for our sins so that we could be redeemed. Because there is another reason that John's Gospel reiterates or uses the same language as the opening verses of Genesis. And that is not only is John wanting to draw a connection between God of Genesis 1 and the word of John 1, but also he's wanting to draw a connection between creation in Genesis 1 and the new creation being brought by the Son in the New Testament. The God who created all things is the one who planned, procured, and accomplishes our redemption. And that's an amazing thing. To think of God's greatness and to think of His condescension, to think of His might and to think of His stooping, to think that the God who created everything that goes beyond what we can see and to think of Him hanging upon a cross and then rising again three days later. What an amazing, amazing God that we serve. What should we say about all this? What, what are the consequences of understanding that God is like we are describing? First of all, I would note that we confess our Trinitarian understanding of God on a regular basis. Earlier in this service, we recited the Nicene Creed which is an expression of our faith in the Trinity. Whenever we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is uh, an expression of our Trinitarian faith. We sing hymns, and, and every Sunday we sing one of two songs at the end of our service, either the doxology or the Gloria Patri, which uh, both speak of our faith in the triune God. And so we express this on a regular basis, but in, in what ways can we say that this has an impact on us? I want to mention three things, and then I'll be done. First of all, it does have an impact on how we worship. I, um, one of my vices, Lynette will tell you, is that when we get brochures um, in the mail from churches, I like to read them and make fun of them. Um, and uh, I, I don't say it's a good thing. I'm up here in confession before you. 
but one of the thing one of the things that I sometimes comment on is I'll look at what they have that they have coming up. And one of my uncharitable remarks is, well, their God's not worth bothering with. Have you read the, uh, the, the address that was published by C.S. Lewis in which he said that, um, that the problem with, um, with humanity is not that we desire too much, but that our ambitions are too small. And he said that we're like children who uh, are playing in, uh, making mud pies in puddles and not realizing that they could have a vacation at the beach. And so many people, even so many churches, sadly, worship a God that frankly isn't worth bothering with. The God that we've described, the God of greatness of Genesis 1, the God of redemption of John 1, is a God that's worth bothering with, and not just bothering with, but bowing before and worshiping as our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. Understanding these things has a consequence for our worship. Um, those of you that are my age or older will remember the old PBS series uh, called Cosmos, featuring Carl Sagan. And you'll remember the scenes that Sagan frequently featured where he was standing um, on the deck of his fake spaceship, staring out the window, with a look of wonder at um, the, the cosmos, at the, the galaxies that he was viewing. Uh, Sagan was either an atheist or a pantheist. It's difficult to tell from things that he said. And so when he was staring in awe at the universe, it was all that he had. But we have the God who created all that. How much more should we be in awe? at the greatness of our God and that the reality that that God became our Redeemer. And so there's a consequence for our worship. Second, there's a consequence for our gratitude. It has been said that all of Christian doctrine is grace and that all of Christian conduct is gratitude. And while that may be overstated some, certainly we ought to be grateful that the great Creator has become our Savior. Seeing who the Son is from all eternity should cause us to wonder at His amazing love for us. In Psalm 8, we read, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? It would be so easy to think that a God of such magnitude would just forget about the smallness of us, and yet He died to redeem us, and that for that we ought to be grateful. And then finally, um, we should realize that what God, who God is and what he has done should impact our service. We referred earlier to Philippians 2, which speaks of Christ's humiliation, that he did not think equality with, with God was something to be held on to, but he humbled himself and took on himself on the form of a servant, and he endured suffering, even the suffering of a cross. But recognize that that, and Paul there is probably reciting either an ancient uh, creed or a hymn that the church would have been familiar with. But recognize that Paul is reciting that in the context of reminding the Philippians about how they ought to be living with one another. That they should be modeling 
the example of Christ, that just as Christ humbled himself in service of us, that they should humble themselves in the service of one another. And so there's both a doctrinal and a uh, practical aspect to what Paul is saying there. And so recognizing who God is and what he has done should in fact um, inform our service um, that we uh, perform and conduct um, for one another. Uh, finally, I would say that, um, and I said I had three things, I lied, I have four. But as a consequence of the greatness of God and that He is our Redeemer, there should be an impact on our hope. Some of us are struggling with some big things, bigger things than you, you've got going on, bigger things than I could endure. Um, health issues, family issues. Uh, jobs, finances, things that maybe you shared with others, things maybe that you are um, enduring and bearing alone. Recognizing who God is reminds us that God is bigger than the struggles and that we can turn to him even when we don't know what the answers are, even when we don't know the whys of what is happening. We can appreciate and understand that God will fulfill his will even in the midst of things that we don't understand. In Isaiah 40, um, Isaiah was confronting struggling, hurting people. They were struggling because of their sins in that particular instance and, and God had repaid them double for all their sins is the way the chapter opens. And so all of chapter 40 really is a promise of restoration and renewal. But when people had suffered under such judgment, how were they to believe that God could even bring them out of that? And so we have assurances based on who God um, is. And so Isaiah closes that chapter by saying, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then at the end of the chapter, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And may, be, may it be so for us as we, as we worship and trust in God in the midst of our hurts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, because of your word that we can, um, in even feeble words, partly describe your greatness and goodness. We pray that you would help us all to take these things to heart and they, they would inform our beliefs and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.